You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. The Times is on an order of magnitude worse, historically speaking, than most newspapers in the United States. Very few, if any other newspapers, covered up the Holocaust, covered up the Ukraine famine, was in cahoots with the US War Department to cover up radiation poisoning after the bombing of Japan. I mean, this is just instance after instance after instance, and all of these are of major historical significance. The New York Times has been considered the paper of record for over a century, not just in the US, but worldwide. However, according to polling, public trust in the Times and legacy media overall has reached record lows in recent years, with a large majority of Americans reporting little or no faith in the media. My guest today has done a deep dive on the Times and their record of truth, and he's argued that citizens are wise to have a healthy skepticism towards the paper. Joining me today is Ashley Rinsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Fabrications, and Distortions Radically Alter History. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. Let's jump right in. Ashley, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Georgia, for having me. So you've done a lot of research on The Times, and you've discovered a few pretty stunning examples of instances in which The Times media narrative actually contributed directly to world events. And one thread that really stuck out to me was they have this really interesting history with communism. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's something that really touches off the book chronologically, which is the New York Times's uh, role in covering up the Ukraine famine. And the Ukraine famine, of course, is kind of a euphemism for a genocide perpetrated by Joseph Stalin and the, the still young USSR um, against peasants of Ukraine. And this was something that is, you know, it's, it's a historical outrage that is still being perpetrated today because the Times has refused to take responsibility for it. But at the same time that they were covering up the Ukraine famine, they were also printing outright lies and fabrications and, and really kind of fabulistic stuff about the Soviet Union, how great life was there, how amazing it was to be out and about in Moscow, printing stuff by an actual Soviet propagandist who the Times had hired as a news reporter. His name was Ella Winter. And this is a through line that, as exactly as you pointed out, starts with the Soviet Union in the early 1930s, but really extends through Vietnam, through uh, the rise of Fidel Castro in Cuba. And I think we still pick up elements of it today in the New York Times' current reporting as well. I want to talk to you about media narratives because you've studied that quite a bit. So what exactly are media narratives and where do they come from? So particularly when it comes to propping up certain political causes, from your research, are narratives top down and coordinated or are they more grassroots from like a staff writer, you know, moving on up the chain? They're absolutely top down. They are creating a narrative in the public consciousness is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not something you can really just put out one or two articles or an op-ed here or there. It doesn't work, it doesn't stick. What gets it to stick 
are these coordinated campaigns that require a lot of effort, a lot of resource, and a lot of sophistication. This is a very intentional um, type thing that, that occurs where a media organization or a group of media organizations decides either consciously or not necessarily, maybe they're acting on their own assumptions or prejudices, but in either case, they are engaging in this deliberate effort to seed this idea in our minds. And it takes on this kind of network effect where each next piece of reporting or sub, sort of sub story that is attached to the larger narrative takes has a node, becomes a node in our collective consciousness, in the minds of the public. And that's why it's very hard to debunk them is because even when the reporting later turns out to not be true or there were outright lies or falsehoods involved, those nodes still exist in our minds and it's very difficult to get rid of them. So it's like a psychological effect to kind of bombard from all different directions with a, a similar story. And when one gets debunked, you still have other ones that are sort of in the consciousness of readers. Exactly. Now, you did say that it was coordinated, though. So I'm imagining that, you know, many viewers of this show or fans of PragerU have some distrust of elites, media elites and other kinds of elites. Would you say that there's evidence of coordination at a super high level, or would you say this is more on an institutional level, paper by paper? I think it's both. I think there are absolutely um, interests that a given newspaper might have. In the New York Times's case, for example, the Times has been trying to break into the Chinese news consumer market for over a decade, and that is now an overriding interest of theirs. They have a huge amount of money invested in that market, and they, whether it's conscious or not, are going to toe the line when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party and, and the demands that they make, the ideological demands that they make on the Times' reporting. And the Times knows very well what will happen if they don't toe that line. And I think on a higher level, we are seeing, for example, with lab leak, the theory that this pandemic might have originated from a lab in China, that there was coordination. There, there was stuff going on at the very top level of the American science establishment that trickled down into the consumer media via the science media. So I think there are both instances that, that work together sometimes as well. Do you have any theories why the dominant publications today, be it the New York Times, the Washington Post, LA Times, why they all tend to be predominantly left-leaning? That's a great question, and it's a very important question. I think that there are many reasons for it. I think one big reason is academia, because academia has leaned left for so long and so deeply, and it's the, the institution in America producing the journalists, producing the editors, producing the culture, and I think that is one major factor. And another major factor is, you know, perhaps the left has just been doing it for longer. To build up something like the New York Times, its reputation, its reach, its brand, um, not to mention the Washington Post and USA Today and CNN and all the rest of it and, and the networks, of course, that takes a lot of time. It's not something you can just kind of dive in and get done in a five or 10 year period. I mean, these newspapers have been around for decades, some of them centuries. And so they've just probably been doing it for longer and have been more entrenched through that process. Now, you focused a lot on The Times and you've been very critical of them. But would you say The Times is actually worse than other papers when it comes to facts? Or is it on par with other papers, just elevated above them? I would say that The Times is on an order of magnitude worse, historically speaking, than most newspapers in the United States. Very few, if any other newspapers, 
covered up the Holocaust, covered up the Ukraine famine, was in cahoots with the, the, the US War Department to cover up radiation poisoning after the bombing of Japan, the atomic bombing of Japan. Almost none of them gave rise to a dictator in Cuba. I mean, this is just th instance after instance after instance, and all of these are of major historical significance. That was, to me, the standard for my book, to get a chapter on a given topic. It had to have sort of changed history. And there's 10 chapters in that book, and I could have kept going and, I, and right up until today with China, with lab leak, um, and various other topics. So I think that no one even touches the times when it comes to malfeasance. Now, what's the role of fact checkers in maintaining and cementing the New York Times as the paper of record? So how does fact checking work and how has the New York Times maintained its prestige, if that's the case? You know, the New York Times really puts a lot of store in this notion that it's got multiple layers of editors and fact checkers and various mechanisms to try to keep things accurate. But they've always had that. They had that when their infamous reporter, Jason Blair, was just making stuff up whole cloth in the early 2000s. They had just the same number of fact checkers then as they do today, probably had more then. And it all slipped through the cracks. Why? Because there were ideological biases and ideological assumptions that blinded them to what was clearly going on right under their noses and it was even brought to their attention. So you can have as many fact checkers as you want or need, but when the ownership of the newspaper and the management of the New York Times company is telling you this is the storyline, this is what you're going to carry, that tends to be what actually happens. Now, you had an interesting line in a recent interview where you said that a single lie on its own is very fragile, but a false media narrative is anti-fragile. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's kind of what I was referencing before when talking about media narratives, where it's you can knock down any single news report or you can you know, have an editor's note or a correction or what have you. But when you've got this network of mistruths and falsehoods, that's also, by the way, mixed in with facts and truth. And there are, in a given narrative, there might be an any number of stories as part of that narrative that are roughly correct and accurate. And those all serve to sort of support each other, just like this, like a kind of matrix or kind of Wi-Fi system at home, where if you've got two or three nodes in your Wi-Fi system, it's going to be really strong, much stronger than if you just had one Wi-Fi router. So Ashley, the reason I wanted to bring you on today is media trust is actually something I'm really passionate about. About seven months ago, we launched Morning Wire, which is the Daily Wire, Daily News show, which I co-host. And the reason why I bring that up is we started Morning Wire kind of as a response to the problems that you've talked about. And that brings me to my next question, which is, what do you think the solution is moving forward to how Americans can start building trust with media again and start getting better news sources? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's incredibly important. You know, one thing that I that I try to caution people is to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't say that just because there's corruption in some of the media that we don't need journalism. We absolutely do. And in, in the beginning of the book, I quote Thomas Jefferson, who says, if he could choose between a government with no newspapers or newspapers with no government, he would take the newspapers. And the question is, what kind of news are we getting? And I think what we all can do right now as on the consumer side is 
go out and be a citizen journalist, which doesn't necessarily mean you need to start interviewing and reporting on stories, but you need to go out and search for the news that's important to you from the sources you consider to be reliable. Go find them, cut out the noise, the 90% of the news you don't care about, it's not relevant to you, and go find the sources who are really experts on the topics that matter to you and to your life. And I think on the other side of that, which is the news production side, it's to do exactly what you're doing, Georgia, which is to don't ask permission from the big bad news industry to do your own thing. Just do your own thing. Go out there, find and report stories, get a YouTube channel, um, establish a news organization, a professional news organization, if that's what is right for you, and just take the initiative. And I think that's really the key here is we need to take back power, take back credibility, because the American people and the rest of the world need it. They need reliable information and they need sources that they can trust. Now, you said go out and search for good news sources. So one question people might have is how can they tell? And one thing they may really be wondering about is, are there any ways that you can spot a media narrative or a false media narrative? Are there any telltale signs that people can be looking for to help them find those news sources that are gonna be trustworthy over the long term? I think you're seeing too much emphasis on a single story over and over and over across different formats, that's a great indicator that someone is trying to build a narrative rather than report the facts. So with Trump, I mean, it was just wall to wall, nonstop podcasts, movies, documentaries, news reports, op-eds, editorials, absolutely nonstop. And you have right there an alarm bell that something is amiss. On the other side of that, I think if you have people who are willing to hear the other side out, who are willing to consider different ideas who are open to being corrected from time to time as well. And they're kind of at a sort of a little bit of a lower tone, just a little bit more disinterested and a little bit kind of more open. I, you know, it's a gut sense that you have, but whenever you, f you feel someone's trying to push an idea or push a version of events rather than present it, I think that's a red flag. And when you do find that they're just trying to offer you what they believe to be their best approximation of the truth and of the facts without saying this is definitively what it is, I think that's a good sign that they're onto something on the right track. All right, Ashley, we're just about out of time, but where can people find you online if they wanna follow your work? Find me on Twitter. My handle is my full name, Ashley Rinsberg. Um, you can check out the book, The Gray Lady Winked, at thegrayladywinked.com, and that's gray with an A, it's the American spelling. And um, I run something called The Burning Castle Podcast, which talks with independent creative people who are blazing their own trails and not relying on institutions to tap their creativity in order to make positive change in the world. And that's theburningcastle.com. All right, Ashley, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Georgia. Well, folks, that's the end of today's Office Hours. If you enjoyed this conversation with Ashley Rinsberg, go pick up his book, The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Fabrications, and Distortions Radically Alter History. I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in.